Today we're looking at Mark chapter 13. Let's go to the word, read it together, and then we'll discuss it. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What a magnificent building! Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear the wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father to his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter in his house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. <clears throat> be on guard. Be alert. You do not know what, uh, what that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. <laughs> Chapter 13 in Mark is a great example of Jesus prepping his disciples for his imminent departure from them and their mission on this earth, which is about to begin, and that is to establish the church. That's about to start here. 
in just a few days, in fact, hours from the time when this was given to uh, the disciples on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was going to be executed, then rise from the dead, and the church would be born as the Holy Spirit is given to mankind as the helper or comforter or counselor, and Jesus departs, awaiting for his return in glory. What Jesus is trying to do here is to prep his disciples for something they probably did not expect. And the first thing they talk about is this great temple. Let's talk for a moment about the temple they're talking about. About 940 BC, Solomon was instructed by God to build a temple for God to dwell in. Now, as you remember from the Old Testament, uh, Moses, traveling in the Exodus out of Egypt, came out and built what is called a tabernacle or a tent in which God, our Father, dwelled amongst the Israelites or the Hebrews. They moved around in the desert for 40 years, and then they settled in the land of Canaan, which then became the land of Israel. Uh, But for many hundreds of years after that, God's presence amongst human beings on earth still dwelled in what you would call a tent, a temporary structure that was erected by the Israelites as a place where they could come and meet God. Now, of course, we know that God could live anywhere. He created the earth and he's all-powerful and he can travel anywhere in the universe that he chooses. But God chose to have a physical place to reside so that his people on earth could connect with him better. Remember, uh, the human race is very young back in the time of Moses, and they're still trying to understand their relationship with God. And God's intention there was to say, I'm going to create a place, a physical place, where my presence will be manifest, and you as humans can come and we can connect to each other. In a sense, connecting heaven and God's heavenly realm with humans on earth in the earthly realm. And that connection point between those two worlds, essentially, was the tabernacle or tent. Now, once the kings of Israel uh, became anointed, that was Saul was the first anointed king, then David, then David's son Solomon, that was the time that God decided that he wanted a more permanent structure built as his dwelling place amongst the Israelites. That became what's called Solomon's Temple, probably built around 940 BC, so 3,000 years ago, a long time ago, built uh, on uh, essentially uh, the most holy of mountains in Jerusalem. That temple mount uh, and temple lasted for hundreds of years. That was, by all accounts, a wonderful uh, structure. Uh, the courtyards and the temple structure itself were wonderful. They contained many items of precious value, including the Ark of the Covenant, which, of course, uh, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen that in Raiders of the Lost Ark, amongst other items. And that was a very holy place. Uh, in fact, the Ark of the Covenant itself was the f- so-called footstool of God, a place uh, in the most holy of chambers of this temple, the Holy of Holies, in which God himself dwelled and his physical presence was manifest and he essentially set his feet on this, this Ark of the Covenant as his resting place. Again, this connection between heaven and earth. <clears throat> in about 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, or Neo-Babylonian Empire, destroyed Jerusalem and he destroyed Solomon's temple and essentially uh, burned it to the ground and knocked all of the stones over and took all of the precious pieces. So it was completely destroyed. It remained uh, barren um, for almost 100 years. And around 500 uh, BC, 
around 510 or 515 BC, a new temple was constructed by the returning Jewish people, the returning Israelites, so they could have their temple again, a place where God could dwell. That was essentially the second temple. It paled in comparison by all accounts to Solomon's temple. It was a a much smaller structure. It was a poor structure. It wasn't built very well. The materials were not very good. And of course, at that point, certainly did not contain the Ark of the Covenant or any of the original items that were in there, at least some of them. Some of them were returned, as we know, in Daniel, but uh, most of them uh, were lost. Well, that continued on for hundreds of years. Come now to the first century BC. King Herod, Herod the Great that we know from the birth story of Jesus, was the ruler of Judea of this time, essentially most of of Israel. And he decided uh, that he wanted to rebuild that temple into a magnificent structure and so he could be the envy of the world. King Herod was a wicked man who was uh, allied with the Roman Empire, so he had a lot of very rich friends in Rome. And he himself was rich because he was a despot and he plundered his own people to make himself fabulously wealthy while his people suffered in terrible poverty. Herod rebuilt the Temple of the Jews to be the most magnificent temple in the entire world. This is actually surprises people, but when Herod rebuilt that temple, uh, and it finished in the first century AD, it was the largest temple in the world. Think about that for a moment. And all of the ancient temples that you've heard or read about, Herod's temple was the biggest temple in the world, and it was magnificent. It had these huge cut stones of marble and and rock. Uh, It had, uh, it was ordained with these gold leaf that would cover the outside of it. In fact, uh, the Jews had so much extra money from all of the donations from Herod and from the people that they didn't have anything, to, they didn't have any more to do with that except turn it into uh, gold and ornaments and they would ornate the entire temple with all of this magnificent uh, jewels and, and precious metals. So this was a magnificent structure. And again, for the Jews, that was God's resting place or where he communed with human beings. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 13 and talk about what's happening. The disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley and looking across into uh, Jerusalem proper, this would have been a magnificent, white, beautiful, gleaming uh, complex. They would have just wondered at it and thought about how amazing it was. And Jesus is going to tell them, no, that's going to be destroyed. Now, I want you to think for a minute what that meant to them. Again, Jesus' disciples are still probably thinking Jesus is going to be a military ruler who is going to take over. He's going to conquer the Roman Empire, kick them out of Judea, and he's going to reestablish himself as an earthly king. Well, of course, you would think that meant what? That Jerusalem would be intact that the temple would be intact. And in fact, the temple would be the symbol of the Jewish people's great power on this earth, right? The first thing they would do is say, look at this great temple and how great we are. Well, Jesus is going to contradict all of that. Not only is he not going to be that earthly king who, you know, takes over in a military coup and kicks out Rome, but he is saying that beautiful temple that has become your idol is going to be destroyed. And if it is destroyed, that means that God's resting place will no longer reside on that mountain in Jerusalem in that temple. Well, that would have been a very shocking statement to these men. The second thing he's going to say is start to prep them for essentially what's about to happen with the birth of the church. 
think for a moment when Mark is written. The Gospel of Mark, probably written in the 60s or 70s AD, the church has already been growing for about 30 years at least by the time that the Gospel of Mark is uh, written. <clears throat> when the church begins in Judea in the first century, it grows extremely rapidly. Why did it grow so rapidly? Well, in fact, we think that Christianity grew faster than any other religion in human history in the first century because of what is said in Mark chapter 13. Think about it for a minute. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, the end of the world is coming. It is coming in this, quote, generation. You need to get out and preach the gospel to all nations. That's written here. And as soon as that happens, and you tell the whole world about me, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the end of the world is going to happen, and everything is going to be destroyed. Well, what's happening? Well, the people of the first century, as soon as Jesus you know, arises from the dead and leaves them, they go out and they immediately start telling people about Jesus because they think the clock is ticking and they have to do this as soon as possible. They don't want to wait. There's no time to wait or delay. It explains why there wasn't a lot of written material in the first few decades of the early church because they just didn't think it was wise to waste their time sitting in a room writing it down when they couldn't just go tell people. And that's exactly why the Christian church grew so rapidly in the first few decades. People didn't wait to write things down or sit and ponder or talk about it. They just went and told everyone they knew about Jesus. And in fact, folks, I would say that's a great application for you today. Don't sit around waiting. For something to happen, go do it. Tell the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these words would have been very shocking to the disciples uh, of Jesus there on the Mount of Olives, because instead of this glorious court, a kingly court that they would be a part of, they're hearing that they're going to be oppressed, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be arrested, in fact, they're going to be killed. This would have been a very different future than those disciples had been prepping themselves for as kind of the inner circle of the new king of Israel. This is not what they expected, and in fact would have been very shocking and probably very depressing. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He goes, not only are you going to suffer these things, the entire world is going to be destroyed in a terrible cataclysm where, quote, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Goodness gracious. Very, very depressing things indeed, but it shows you the power of God and how the world will end in its current form. This is not our home, folks. Our home is yet to be revealed to us, but this world will pass away and this is not permanent. So don't fix your gaze and your idol worship on things of this world. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't worship that magnificent temple. Don't worship that job you have. Don't worship that car in your garage. Don't worship your career or your children's success. All of that is temporary. All of that is, is going to fail at some point and pass away, and it will be wiped away completely from this world and remade again. <laughs> so all of that needs to be absorbed by the disciples as they hear these things. <clears throat> he also is making the point here that there is going to be false teachers that pretend to be the Messiah. But Jesus is saying, don't listen to any of them. You will know for sure when I return, because here it says it in verse 26, at the time men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth. 
Folks, when Jesus does return, that's going to be a very clear moment, and everyone on earth will know exactly what it is. Now, that group of disciples interpreted Jesus' message in verse 30. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. <clears throat> they certainly interpreted that the way you might have interpreted it here, that that was that physical generation, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew and his disciples, they would physically, uh, in their lifetimes, experience these things. I think this is an important time to take a step back and talk about how many times in the Bible, God teaches us through his word uh, truth that, that has multiple meanings. In this case, Jesus was not kidding when he said, this generation, meaning you physically here in the next few decades will experience this. And we know that actually happened. Only 40 years after Jesus made these statements, the Jewish people would rise up in a civil war against their Roman overlords, and they would be completely crushed by it. Rome, tiring of the constant civil war in Judea, the constant rebellion, would send uh, its massive armies against Jerusalem, besiege Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, and completely destroy the temple. So, in a way, Jesus was literal here that it was going to happen within the generation of those who were listening to it. So he wasn't kidding. And if you had lived long enough to see that destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you would have known that actually happened. But Jesus is also talking about a future state here that has not happened yet, even for us today in the 21st century. He is talking about a time when the temple will be rebuilt and people will come claiming falsely to be Messiahs or Jesus Christ. They will be the Antichrist. And in fact, the disciple or apostle John, in his last years on earth, probably towards the end of the first century, wrote about that, expanding greatly on Mark chapter 13 in the book that we call Revelation, or the Apocalypse, in which he reveals what God has revealed to him as the end times, which sound very similar to Mark chapter 13, uh, and they sound horrible. And that will happen. So in that case, Jesus is talking about several things simultaneously. And if you interpret that as this generation, again, much is made of this, um, the word generation, genea here in Greek, and for the Hebrew, both mean groups of people, race, um, uh, lifestyle. Uh, and so it, it doesn't just mean the physical generation of people who are going to be born and be die in the next you know, 40, to, for 40 to 80 years. It means this group of people. What he's saying here is the Jews will not pass away until all these things have happened. What he's saying is, look, the covenant promises are going to pass to a group of people who are not Jewish because the Jews had their chance and they kind of messed it up. So salvation and the gospel will be for all people, whether they're Jewish or not. But Jesus is making a very clear statement here of comfort. He's saying, look, he is not going to wipe the Jewish people off this earth and they are not going to completely expire. So I think if you are Jewish, you take much comfort in hearing that, oh, you're not going to end. Your lineage is not going to end. And at some point, uh, we know that they will also be redeemed in the end times. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time as we talk about Mark chapter 14. Mm -hmm.